now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, I'm David French. I'm a member of the Persuasion Board of Advisors. I'm also a senior editor at The Dispatch and a columnist for Time Magazine. The name of my piece is The Hate at the Heart of Conspiracy Theory. I wrote it because I was dissatisfied with the explanation for the rise of conspiracy theories on the American right. I was speaking mainly when I wrote this back in September about the QAnon movement, but as we've seen conspiracy theories spread about the allegedly stolen election of 2020, I was dissatisfied with discussions of conspiracy theories. I thought they were fundamentally insufficient in an important way. They were often locating the source of conspiracy theory thinking in distrust, distrust of institutions, distrust of individuals. And I think that that's inadequate to explain what's happening right now. So, for example, if I'm going to buy a new car, let's say I want to trade in my Honda Accord and I and I want to go to the dealer and get a new car, I don't necessarily trust what the car salesman is going to tell me. I'm not going to take his word for it, but I don't trust him. But that doesn't also mean that I'm thinking he's part of a global pedophile cabal that drinks the blood of slaughtered children. (laughs) That's not what you think when you distrust somebody. You distrust somebody and you're not necessarily going to believe what they tell you. To believe that somebody could be part of a global pedophile ring, you have to dislike them. You have to even hate them. You have to think that they're human beings capable of something so evil and so loathsome. And so what we're having right now in the United States of America is millions of people, millions, if we're going to go beyond QAnon, who believe everything from the sort of the global pedophile ring of QAnon to the idea, for example, that shutdowns were intentionally inflicted on Americans for the sole purpose of defeating Donald Trump and ruining the economy and people's livelihoods for political purposes only. Or that the pandemic was hyped entirely for the purposes of defeating Donald Trump. And I'd have people say to me, the pandemic will go away after Trump is defeated, if he's defeated. And this was told to me all running up to the 2020 election. To believe that somebody would ruin an economy hype a pandemic or even manufacture the existence of a pandemic to outright completely violate the law systematically to steal an election. All of these things require a heck of a lot more than distrust. What they require is active hatred, something even far beyond dislike. And so what we have to understand is those minds that are dedicated to conspiracy theories are sliding ever deeper into a darkness that is fueled by hate. And unless we can contain that spirit of hate and contempt, conspiracy theories may well consume our constitutional republic. David French's piece called The Hate at the Heart of Conspiracy Theory was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. For this week's episode, I had a conversation with Frederick de Boer. Freddie is a really interesting left-wing thinker who has often gotten in trouble online for his heterodox opinions. He's also the author of a book called The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. It's a really provocative book. It comes from a left-wing perspective, but it basically says that we really should give up to some extent on the hope of social mobility and of improving, increasing social mobility at scale. So we had a really interesting conversation about that. We also, at the end of our conversation, talked a bunch 
about what he calls the sort of Calvinist nature of some of the recent left-wing political activism, and why its fatalistic outlook is actually a great hindrance to making progress. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Freddie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm really interested in your latest book in part because it really challenges some of the ways we tend to think about education. So, you know, we have a way of thinking about education where we say, look, unfortunately, there's really unequal opportunities. We have some really good schools, some really bad schools. We have some parents who can invest a lot of time and effort into helping their children succeed and others who just don't have the resources to do that and have the time to do that. And so what we need to do is to you know, equalize the kind of resources people get, make sure that we identify the smartest kids you know, who come from less privileged backgrounds and make sure that we sort of parachute them into good universities. And that'll create a sort of more just society with more opportunities for everybody. What's wrong with that picture? I think the first thing that's wrong with that picture is that it assumes that there are variables that are under the control of society and society's educational system that a lot of evidence demonstrates are not under the control of society. So uh, let's talk about No Child Left Behind, for example. And explain to some of our international listeners what No Child Left Behind was. It's one of those things that's hard to disagree with. I don't want to leave children behind. Sure, No Child Left Behind. What does that mean? No Child Left Behind was a George W. Bush era bill, which was championed by Bush, but was also championed by liberal Democrats such as Ted Kennedy in particular that wanted to establish national standards for educational outcomes in the United States for public schools. And those standards were, in my opinion, fantastical. So within, I believe it was 13 years from the passage of the law, they wanted to achieve literal 100% compliance with state and local standards across the country. So literally, when it says no child left behind, the text of the law literally says all children had to be meeting standards. So there was no sense built into the law that some students were not going to thrive. Like the very idea was excised from the law because again, no child left behind. There also was a provision that at a particular grade level, at a particular school, you had to have growth year over year in perpetuity. So if it's 2000 and I have a group of fifth graders, my 2001 group of fifth graders has to outperform the year 2000 group. So you have universal standards and perpetual growth baked into the system. And attached to that, you have some very draconian measures, including cutting funding to underperforming schools, which many people saw probably correctly as a way to invite a death spiral. You cut funding to low-performing schools, which of course limits their ability to perform better. They continue to perform poorly and the excuse you need to ax the schools. That document that test is the epitome of the uh, idea that there are no limits to what we can do in schooling and that whatever limits we have are limits of will, that if we wanted to change outcomes in school, then we would do it. But unfortunately, uh, that's just not the world that we live in. No Child Left Behind is remarkable in that at the height of the resistance between President Obama and congressional Republicans. When they were at loggerheads completely, there was total gridlock in Washington. Nothing could get done because of the divide between the president and Congress. And yet they came together to get rid of No Child Left Behind as a bipartisan measure because it had been so disastrous. So let me understand the sort of motivation behind this that perhaps helps to explain 
what made that view of the world attractive and then how that went wrong. So I guess the problem was that there was just a good number of schools in the United States that had a huge percent of students who didn't graduate high school or had a good number of students who graduated high school and they actually really did not know how to read and write, or they really did not know how to do basic math. They were just you know, very far away from not just the standards that arbitrarily we might decide you should have in order to graduate high school, but the kinds of standards that you need in order to thrive in society, right? And so the idea was, hey, let's create incentives and let's put pressure on schools in order to, you know, look, if we have to close down bad schools where people are getting bad educations, that's fine, but let's do what we can in order to make sure that students actually get a real education, but we have a higher percentage of a country that is set up for success in life, right? So presumably the ambition behind the bill seems very attractive. But what you're saying is wrong with it is that actually the problems that explain why in some schools such a high percentage of students doesn't graduate or graduates, but doesn't actually know how to read and write very well, those are not the kinds of problems that a school principal could solve. Yeah, so I think it's important to sort of set the stage just for context. If we look at an international competition, the median American student does all right. Okay, so when we talk about the United States and its supposedly failing school system, the median American student does pretty good. They don't do great, but they do pretty good. Our top quintile, if you take our top performing, highest performing students and compare them to the highest performing students from other countries, we are competitive with anyone in the world. So we produce excellence that you can stack up with any other country. Our numbers are dragged down by a relatively small number of places where there are truly, truly terrible outcomes. Let me just jump in for a second because I want to hear about those places and what explains that. But that's very interesting to me because it explains or it gives statistical evidence for misperception that Europeans often have of the United States and that I always tell people about, which is that there's this idea in Europe that American schools are terrible and American high schools are terrible. And to some extent, that's an idea within the United States itself as well. In my experience, it's very different. When I look at you know, some of the American friends I went to grad school with and I talked to them about what they did in the high schools, you know, the way in which they were intellectually challenged and the opportunities they had was far superior to anything I experienced. And that's true to some of the Americans who go to fancy private schools, but it's true to many of them who go to public schools, state schools that are in nice zip codes, that are in the affluent suburbs of New York or Houston or somewhere else. So I think it's not that American high schools are worse than European ones, as many Europeans believe. It's that the variability is just way higher. So you go to a fancy school with a lot of kids who have highly educated affluent parents in the nice suburbs of the big cities, and you actually have schools that are far superior, I think, to many schools you have in Europe. But then you go to the inner city of a struggling city like Baltimore, and you probably have schools that are just way, way worse than any school in Germany or France. So we have a situation where we ask, okay, so now we've got the scenario where we're being dragged down by very low-performing bottom percentile. And so the idea becomes, well, let's just fix those schools, maybe by closing some, by firing a lot of teachers, et cetera, and we'll fix our problems. Here's the problem from a thousand feet, okay? Number one, and this is very challenging to people, but there's a lot of research that suggests that school quality simply moves the needle a lot less than we think. 
school quality is the thing that controls outcomes. It's the dominant variable or the dominant factor. But even Rand Education, which is an organization that is very much a pro-charter school, pro-ed reform kind of a shop, even they say student side factors are four times to eight times more powerful influences on the performance of students than school side variables. And I quote many sources in the book that uh, are studies that show truly random placement of students into different schools doesn't make a difference. In other words, the relative quality does not seem to impact the outcome of students when they're randomly sorted into different schools. Of course, is this a big, very challengeable notion that uh, people have been fighting about for years, of course, but there's a, a lot of evidence in support of that. Well, one of the interesting pieces of evidence that, that I've seen about this is that at the moment, there's this huge fight over magnet schools in New York City and San Francisco. These are public schools which select for the most talented kids within the city. You test in through a very demanding exam. And at this point in both New York and San Francisco, they're overwhelmingly Asian-American. And there's attempts to change that because it's seen as unjust that particularly Black and Hispanic students are underrepresented in them. And so there's a huge push to abolish those selective entrance exams and so on. And I guess there's sort of an assumption on each side, right? There's an assumption on the side of the left-wing reformers that abolishing these entrance exams and getting more students access to those schools is going to really help social justice because it will really set them up for greater success in life. And there's an assumption on those who resist those changes, particularly some of us parents of Asian Americans, many of whom are quite poor themselves, are first-generation immigrants, who think this is our kids' ticket to a better life and how dare you take it away from them. And I'm sort of sympathetic to both sides, actually, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is both sides are wrong, that if you just put a different set of kids into those schools, they won't actually profit in the way they did. But also, those kids may not be doing as much for their very successful current crop of students because they would thrive anywhere else as well. And there's a study that looks at kids who just passed that entrance exam. You know, if you need 70 points to get in, you know, kids who had 70 or 71 points and compares them to kids who had 68 to 69 points and didn't get into those school systems. And it turns out they go to the same colleges and have similar life outcomes. Stuyvesant in New York, to pick an example, or the Latin public selective high schools in Boston, they graduate such a remarkable set of students. Their, their alumni are so prestigious. How can you deny the quality of the school? Well, of course, when you have a mechanism in place that excludes 99% of the students and only lets the 1% of students who do that well on the test in or whatever the number is. Whenever you are excluding such a huge percentage of students and only taking the highest performing students, of course they're going to perform well. I mean, I say in the book, it's like having a height minimum for your school and then bragging about how tall your student body is, right? Of course, when you have a mechanism that is designed to filter people out of the potential student pool who are the ones who are most likely to struggle, you're going to look good in the comparison. And so what's the implication of that then, right? Like if actually schools just have less impact on outcomes and what happens to the students when we fought, what does that mean? That's depressing, right? Because we'd think that, hey, we put more resources into those schools, we find better teachers, we find better pedagogical methods, we integrate schools, we do all those important things. And hey, that'll transform the life chances of those who are underprivileged. You're sort of picking a hole into that 
if we still care about all of those outcomes, if we still want to make sure that people have better lives, what does that mean? The question is, what are we willing to define as improvement? Because I am not someone who has ever said that there is no impact from teaching or that schools have no impact at all, that there is no ability to make positive impacts in the learning outcomes of students. However, the scale at which they've been demanded, so again, like with using No Child Left Behind as like a stand-in for the kind of policy thinking that we, I mean, you know, Obama repealed No Child Left Behind, but he replaced it with the Every Student Succeeds Act, which has many of the same flaws that No Child Left Behind does. If we are willing to look at a lower scale, number one, if we are willing to define success, acknowledging that we're not going to take a bottom quartile student and turn them into a top quartile student very often, if we're willing to say, okay, rather than moving these metrics uh, higher and higher and higher and higher, maybe we can create a sort of genuine, gradual, gentle rise in those metrics and accept that as victory rather than as a form of failure because of how we've defined things. That's one thing. The other thing is, and I talk a lot about this in the book, is we could make things easier on the losers of the academic game rather than trying to make everyone a winner in the academic game. I mean, if we had this issue where a lot of our students end up underperforming in school and underperformance in school has negative consequences. What we've been trying thus far is just make everybody a school star. Education is the only tool that a lot of people see as we have in our belt to do this. The other thing we could do instead is say, okay, let's work to mitigate the negative impact of performing poorly on school in order to so that people who don't succeed very well in school have a better chance at a better life. So I guess I have two sets of responses to this. I want to put them up front and we can go through them one by one. Now, one is that if the heterogeneity of how will people do is so much higher in the United States than it is in other countries, then it suggests to me that that's because of social institutions and that it, there might be stuff we can do to fix that. And then the second question is, all right, fine. So if we want to make sure that not that much depends on sort of how well you do, how do we make sure that we actually end up with a society that, you know, creates affluence and all of those kinds of things, right? So let's take each of those questions in turn. So on the first point, you know, look, okay, so sending a kid randomly to one school or another school doesn't seem to matter that much you know, these mechanisms, these incentives to improve the quality of schools, which is ultimately what things like No Left Behind were meant to do, may not work very well. But look, if there's some countries in which most students do pretty well, like you look at the 10th percentile of student outcomes and they're pretty competent and therefore they're set up for meaningful lives where they may not end up being CEOs, but they'll be able to participate in an economy in a meaningful way. And then you have another country like the United States where the 10th percentile student actually is that can't read and write. And so there's a lot of meaningful things in the professional as well as personal lives that they're excluded from. Well, why can't we try and make the United States more like those other countries? Well, in a sense, I would like us to make the United States more like those other countries. It's depending on the country. So let's take the example of Finland. Okay. Finland is, depending on who you ask, has the most successful education system in the world. Many people would say we choose Finland. Um, they have uh, metrics that are enviable in a variety of different ways. However, 
a few things about Finland. First of all, they are able to achieve that excellence with a massive reduction in the amount of stress and psychic pain and pressure that are put on students. In other words, the idea that we need to be putting a ton of pressure on our kids in order for them to succeed well seems to be contraindicated by the Finnish experience. In Finland, it is perfectly common for a Finnish five-year-old to not know how to read. It's perfectly common for the parents of that Finnish five-year-old to have never attempted to teach that kid to read. It's simply that kind of early educational stress simply does not exist within that culture. You compare that to where I live in Brooklyn, you find some affluent white Brooklyn parents. If their kid is not reading by five, I guarantee you they'll be in a state of crisis, right? So excellence and a reduction in the kind of pressure that we put on students can go together. But also we know, suppose you are one of those few Finnish students who don't do well in school. Suppose you're someone who struggles. Well, you know that you're going to be someone who emerges into a social safety net of the kind where you can survive and you can scratch out an existence with dignity based on the kind of social services that are available to you, which are not available in the United States. So you lower the stakes, right? If the game seems rigged, if some people just seem to have a better hand than other people in this game, if the game seems rigged to you, you can try to unrig the game and we can talk about ways to do that. But the other thing you can do is you can lower the stakes of the game so that the people who didn't get dealt a good hand end up having a better life. So that seems convincing to me, right? I think being a waiter in Sweden is much more pleasant than being a waiter in the United States, in part because there's just smaller material differences between members of the society, in part because you know that you have things like healthcare and childcare and so on that are taken care of. So you may be able to buy a less nice television than your neighbor, but you're not worried that you're falling behind on medical bills. And that obviously is more desirable for a whole range of reasons. I guess, though, that what this seems to imply is a relatively stark vision of a class society nevertheless, which is to say, sure, it is a society in which the stakes of which social class you're a part of are relatively low. It's nicer to be a doctor than a waiter, but you can have a perfectly nice life as a waiter, and that sounds wonderful. But it also sounds like you're saying, look, assuming that the success of children is not randomly distributed, as surely it is not, you're telling me, hey, you know, the child and the grandchild of a waiter is just never going to be a doctor, and tough luck, nothing we can do about that. So why do we really have to give up on that prospect? And what would society look like if, sure, hey, everybody has a decent income and we have decent lives, but actually the rigidity of a class structure is very strong and we've given up on overcoming or transforming that? Well, so I would say, I don't know if you've seen the, the Pixar film Ratatouille, but in Ratatouille, there's a great line. It comes from this famous food critic, and he says, it's not that anyone could be a great cook, but that a great cook could come from anywhere. So I think, yes, there are real material limits on the ability of some people to excel academically. And I mean, I include myself in this, in math and the sciences. There's a really hard cap on my ability to learn things, even when I try very hard. But genetics is chancy. If we're talking about genetics, if we think that there's a genetic component to all of this, then genetics has a great deal of not randomness, but probability baked into it. 
And so I think that the grandchild of a waiter and the child of a waiter could become a doctor if things broke out right. My position is simply that we cannot make that grandchild be a doctor, that we can't dictate that as much as we might want to try. In terms of just being a class society, well, this is kind of the purpose of the book. I would like to, and I don't know if this is possible, but I would love to rejigger the conversation and rejigger our vision of the class society and say, okay, can we take a look at that doctor and that waiter? And maybe we can't equalize them in terms of prestige. Maybe we can create a society where at the very least, we aren't saying that that doctor is more valuable than that waiter because we assume that the doctor is more intellectually adept. Well, I mean, a point that was made clear to me during the course of the book is that while intelligence has always been valued, the kind of shorthand way in which intelligence is taken to be a summation of the value of a human being is fairly recent. I think that it's a 19th and 20th and 21st century phenomenon, in part because it has been within the last several centuries that your intelligence has become more and more important as being the source of your ability to produce a wage and to climb the career ladder. So these things are intertwined and I want to de-intertwine them. What I would love to do is be able to create a society, starting with parents, where we don't make people feel like that their intrinsic value is a function of their ability to succeed at school. So that that waiter, he might live in material conditions that are less enviable than that of the doctor, and that's probably inevitable, but that that person doesn't feel that they have anything to prove to anyone because the fact they're a waiter doesn't say anything about their worth. I'm thinking back to a conversation I had on this podcast with Michael Sandel a few months ago. And, you know, like a few books at the moment, he is a critic of meritocracy. But I found, and I love Michael, he's my doctoral advisor, I found the conversation a little bit frustrating because I kept pushing him on a point and he kept evading an answer. But I think you may have a clearer answer to that. And that's that there's a criticism of meritocracy as the culture of what you call the cult of smart, right? As the culture of saying, hey, look at me, I went to a fancy university and you know I'm succeeding in some competitive professional field and therefore I'm really better than the rest of you and I sort of get to look down on you. And unlike sort of aristocrats who at least had some kind of sense that you know they were born into their position and perhaps the obligations and gratitude should come with it, there's a sense of I created myself and so I don't even have to be apologetic for it. I recognize all of that, right? I think that's clearly pernicious and aiming for a society that overcomes that seems obviously right. There's a second part, though, where some of these criticisms of meritocracy seem to at least hint at the idea that we also shouldn't give the most desirable position in society to those who are best qualified for them. That this idea, the most literal historical idea of a career open to talents or of merit is irrelevant. And there I sort of get off the train. I said, well, no, look, like I certainly want to value the waiter the same as the doctor, but you know, if a waiter screws up, then a nice dinner ends up on the floor. If a surgeon screws up, somebody dies. And I want to make sure that the people who in fact are best qualified to be surgeons are surgeons. That's in huge social importance. So I guess I think you seem more comfortable with that distinction where there's a notion of merit on which we really should run society on that. You know, the smartest people should become doctors. And then there's this sort of culture of meritocracy where you side with somebody like Michael Sandel and you want to criticize that. Does that seem right or is that too simple? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I guess in a brute pragmatic sense, 
even if I got everything that I wanted tomorrow, I would not be worried that there would be insufficient reward for people wanting to be surgeons. Even if people adopted my sort of cultural attitudes towards academic performance and its relationship to our value as human beings, I still think that a lot of people will be attracted to the profession of surgeon and pursue it and that it will inevitably be a competitive endeavor. And one of the points of the book is that there's always going to be competitive endeavors of those kinds. And one of the first things we have to do to be humane human beings is to recognize that not everybody is equally equipped within those competitions, right? So the point of the book is not, let's have someone who's bad at being a surgeon be a surgeon. I would think that that would be a not a very good outcome but rather to look at the person who did not become a a surgeon and instead became a waiter and say, the world needs waiters as well as it needs surgeons. The ability to become a surgeon is chancy. It is filled with all kinds of conditions that are outside of our control, like anything that we do in the world. And so I'm not going to look upon the surgeon and say that person is someone who is of higher intrinsic value than anybody else. And if you want a really good example of how this plays out in our discourse, when people say to me, I don't think the cult of smart exists, I point them to immigration debates. Because when we have immigration debates, and you're talking about highly skilled worker visas, I think H-1B or something like that, they're called, people will just say flagrantly straight out, we want the smartest. We want to attract the most brilliant people from India and China and Korea, et cetera. And that's what we want to use our immigration strategy to get people in. So there's a straight out direct statement of the cult of smart right there. Why is that the cult of smart? Let's distinguish between two different things here, right? Which is, I get that famously Germany has these schools, which are sort of professional schools for people who are more practically than academically minded and they set you up very well to become car mechanics and so on. And and there's a pride in that. There's a culture that if you go to one of those institutions and you do well there and you sort of really learn a craft, that's you're, you're a very valued member of society. And that sort of opens a lot more roads for people to have a role in society and social status that they're happy with. And I think here, people look down on a car mechanic more than they do in Germany. And that to me is the cult of smart. But that doesn't seem to be incommensurable with saying, look, if we have immigration and we want people to come in, sure, let's pick the ones, and there's moral questions about the impact it has on the sending countries and so on, but let's pick the smartest ones who are going to you know, contribute most to our economic growth and so on, because that helps to sustain a welfare state that'll make sure that we can actually give more welfare benefits, for example, for people who are you know, less academically gifted and so on. So it's not clear to me. I think you could be a critic of a cult of smart and yet say, oh, of course, we should, you know, expand H-1B visas because that's really what's going to help create wealth in our society. And that has all kinds of benefits. Well, I guess the first thing is that it's not simply that we want to get the smartest people. When we talk about wanting to get the smartest people, when we talk about wanting to expand that kind of visa, but that that is so often used as a contrast to emphasize why we should not take in, for example, a lot of Syrian refugees or migrants from Mexico, right? In other words, the surgeons and rocket scientists that are coming from other countries are counterposed against the mass immigration that people like me would like to see into the United States. The other thing is, it's not clear to me that 
companies want more of these highly skilled worker visas because there's just literally not enough American computer scientists or rocket scientists come and do it, but rather they want to depress wages for the people who are already here, which is a time-honored use of highly skilled worker visas. So that might be an element in there as well. I see. Interesting. Now, what does all of that mean practically, right? I mean, I think creating a culture in which we value people more irrespective of a professional accomplishments is a very attractive thing to me in general. I notice the difference even socially. You know, when I'm in Italy at a gathering of people, you really don't ask as one of the first questions, what do you do? And I think that there's probably milieus in the United States where you wouldn't ask that as one of the first questions either. But if you go to, you know, a party of people who graduated from fancy colleges, that's virtually invariably going to be the question. And certainly it will color how you then see them, depending on how impressive the answer is or whatever, right? But changing that culture seems like um, nearly as hard an undertaking as making sure that every student succeeds, right? So what concretely would it mean to get over the culture of SMART and create a society where we value people more equally? Culture follows material conditions, right? The culture and social aspects of what I complain about in the book are themselves in large measure aspects of economic realities that are happening. So while this sort of intellectual prestige has existed for hundreds or thousands of years, it's also the case that I think that it has accelerated in the last 40 years or so, which is the period of deindustrialization in the United States, where while we still create a lot of things in manufacturing, the number of people employed in that sector has been been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking for decades. So famously, like the factory at the edge of town where everybody could get a job out of high school if they needed one, get in the union and make enough money to own a house and raise a family, those jobs have largely disappeared. And so it became clear very quickly in the area of deindustrialization that people had to go and get a degree if they really wanted to live the good life. And to me, that creates the kind of sort of cultural pressure to, that says you know, the only smart or safe outcome is the academic outcome. There's a few things that I want to do. One thing is to get people through our institutions faster. To a degree, this is already happening, but I'm a big proponent of loosening standards in high school and college. I think that if you look at what's been going on with graduation rate in the United States, we have a graduation rate has never been as good. We have a record low number of students who are dropping out of high school. Their underlying numbers show no reason to support this. In other words, you would think that as the number of students graduating goes higher and higher and higher, that we would see underlying that in like the SAT data and the increase in student outcomes. We don't see that. That's just not something that we see. So it's very likely that this has become just a tool of social promotion, which is that, you know, it's a classic example of when you put so much policy pressure on a particular number, people will achieve that number through any means necessary. So the pressure on getting people out the door and getting graduated has been so intense that the graduation rate has gone up and up and up despite not being really being a good educational reason for it to have done so. So that's in fact, kind of what I want to see happen. And what's the benefit from that? Because presumably a high school degree is valuable as a signal in a market, right? It means that if I'm hiring a shop assistant, you know, I know that this person is going to be able to give correct change and, you know, do some basic accounting at the end of the day to make sure that no money has gone missing and all of the kinds of things that they need to perform their role. In the short run, it may be that giving a few more people high school degrees 
is going to enable a few of those people who might otherwise have fallen short to get those jobs. But if this just makes a high school degree a less effective signal of people having the requisite skills, then in the long run, those people won't be employed because they'll be fired after a few months. And you have all kinds of economic inefficiency that comes from employers having to find alternate ways of ensuring that the people they're hiring have those skills. I mean, the demise of the signaling value of the high school diploma has already happened. The degree is already so ubiquitous that it tells employers basically nothing. I mean, the, they're still in the data. If you just look at things like the employment rate and the median income, it still is better to be a high school graduate than to be someone who drops out of high school. But there's so much noise in that because people who drop out of high school tend to have so many bad things going on in their lives that they swamp whatever the data would be. I think that it's not clear to me that the kind of jobs that someone who's going to get right out of high school actually require, for example, algebra. So I quote the books of The Mass Mess by Andrew Hacker, who's an economist, And one of the things that he demonstrates in his book is just that algebra requirements absolutely wreak havoc with our high school students, that there are just untold thousands of students who would pass from high school if it weren't for their inability to pass their algebra. The same thing in the early stages of college, students can't pass their algebra classes, so they end up dropping out of college. They've got student loan debt now, and they don't have the degree. I think that those are artificial standards that don't necessarily need to be in place and can be replaced by things like broader quantitative reasoning classes, for example, where instead of having to do algebra, you do things like learn about elementary statistics and how to apply them practically in your life, things like that. So I think there's new avenues that we can introduce that can eliminate some of the more onerous classes. You know, in colleges, they have what what are called the weed-out classes, like organic chemistry or first-year engineering or notorious weed-out classes that are specifically designed to get students to drop majors before they find out that they're not good enough to do them. I'm not opposed to the practice of having difficult classes if you want to pursue a particular career path. But it's just not clear to me that the median graduate needs to be able to do pre-calculus. Right. So organic chemistry may, in fact, be a great weed-out class. I don't know whether it is or not. I don't know enough about the topic, but it may be a great way of actually early on predicting is somebody capable of being a doctor. And if a lot of pre-med students are going to be forced to take that class, it might save them a lot of pain two years down the line when they would recognize it anyway or or perhaps it'll even help us weed out some people who shouldn't be doctors because they'd be killing patients inadvertently, right? But what you're saying is actually, you know, making algebra a weed out class for a high school degree, it's not the right signal because it doesn't actually predict where we're going to be able to be a good shop assistant, for example. Exactly. That seems convincing to me. What else? I mean, other than graduating more people from high school and graduating more people from college, what other kinds of measures should we take? So we have to be really careful when we talk about the trades. I actually just wrote something about this. Changing the role of the trades in the United States, I think, perhaps not something as extreme as the German system, but very often people tend to use the trades or the skilled trades as like a panacea. People got French poetry majors, now they can't get jobs. Why didn't they go into the trades? You have to be really extra careful with this conversation because it's a complicated one. People who succeed well in the trades, if you own your own HVAC business, or if you're a unionized Mason in New York City, you can do very, very well for yourselves. However, if you look at a list of the professions with the highest unemployment rates, they're littered with the trades, right? The trades are super region dependent. The kind of working conditions that you, that you have, where you end up working, makes a huge difference. 
they are very, very exposed to the housing and real estate market. So it can often be inconsistent, the amount of work that you can get. So it is a high risk, sort of high reward thing. If you go on Twitter, you know, you see a lot of people, oh, I should have gone to trade school. Well, you know, maybe you would have been in the Mason's Union in Manhattan making a six-figure paycheck, but maybe you would have been a day laborer in Arizona making 25 grand a year, right? That being said, I happened to go to a high school where there was a vocational agricultural program, which had things like mechanical shop, where you could learn to take apart engines and stuff like that. But often that program was used as a way for kids from towns outside of my town's district to get into the school because it attracted kids. It was able to take in kids from uh, regional schools. But it wasn't even like an option. Like The idea about me doing that was never even like seriously broached. There wasn't even like an assembly where it said, hey, here are some of the options that are available for you. Like Kids who did that program went to that school with the intention already of doing it. So I do think that, again, maybe some limited forms of largely voluntary tracking at an earlier age can help students to sort of push them into the path of the skilled trades if that seems like something that they're talented and that they're interested in. I think the ability to make that seem like less of a weird thing to do, like it just would have been socially weird or awkward for me to have been in the VOAG program. And that I think is indicative of a lot of places. So a reinvigorating trade schools is another part of it. But the other part of it, again, like I said before, is you've got to make it easier on people who fail and give them the economic tools to say, okay, you know what? I went to school for this, whatever. I thought I was going to get a job in it. It turns out the job market is too tight. It turns out I'm not good at it. It turns out whatever. There's been a mismatch between what I intended to do and what I want to do. Now, if you're in that position, how are you going to fund uh, and survive the transition from one career path to another, right? How can you go into a different field if you've already spent four years in college and committed yourself to that degree? I think that there are government programs that we could utilize that could do things like make the transitional period for our jobs a lot easier financially. I also think retraining is something that the government should be investing in. Let's change topic for a moment. You've written interestingly about what you call political Calvinism. And you think that it has actually some opportunities for positive change, but also some things you're very worried about in terms of its likely impact. What do you mean by political Calvinism and how should we think about it? Sure. Let's say that you are a student, you know, 19 years old and you're at a competitive liberal arts college somewhere, and you are getting exposed to ideas, as you certainly will, from cultural studies, from feminism, from African-American studies, etc. And all that is great to get that kind of exposure. If you're white, one of the things that you're going to learn is that you are the beneficiary of white privilege and that to a tremendous degree, your white privilege dictates your life right? The way that you make your way through the world, the things that you're able to buy, the jobs that you're able to get, the friends you're able to have, these are a expression of your white privilege, that this is existential and unchangeable, that you can't change the fact that you have white privilege. Well, of course, white people enjoy systematic advantages compared to people of color, and that these advantages play a big role in our lives' outcomes. 
The problem with the politically Calvinist vision, so Calvinism being the religious tradition that says that we're all predestined either for heaven or hell and that we can't change it. The problem with seeing white privilege in a Calvinist way is what then becomes the motivation for you to change anything, right? Like, why are you going to work hard and try to do things like healing the racial rift, like trying to reduce the racial income back gap to pick one? Why are you going to participate that if you know that you are fallen no matter what else happens, right? If you know that from the beginning as a white person that you have that mark of being white and that is something that will never change, what is the impetus for you to actually change your behavior and try to make things better? And, and that's true, by the way, at the individual level, but also at the collective level, right? So it's if I'm fallen and I'm always going to be a sinner, then I'm not going to be able to do anything to change it. And so perhaps I should just be fatalistic or perhaps I should just lean into the sin, right? At least have a good life. There's also a collective version of that, which is that I think that there's a real degree to which the amount of racial progress in this country over the last 50 years is underplayed and understated because it feels sort of glib to say that we've made progress and it feels righteous to talk about all the things that are horrible today. And I get those instincts, but I think at a collective level, if you're saying, hey, for the last 50 years, nothing's gotten better, there's a fatalism that likely will come with that as well, which I think is just as troubling and misleading. Easy to just say, well, okay, why bother? Why try? Matt Iglesias wrote a piece pointing out that the Black Lives Matter movement was working to reduce the number of police shootings in the country. And as I understand it, he was just savaged for it because he was identifying progress. Absolute basic level of a political organizer, you want to make people think that they can actually make a difference in the world. I've been a political activist in my entire adult life. The hardest things to do as an organizer is to take someone who is convinced that the world's broken and always will be broken and say, no, you know, you matter, your ideas and your actions matter, and you can make a difference in this thing. That is a very hard sell. And it doesn't get any easier when it becomes forbidden to say things are getting better. I mean, if you look at like representation of black and women and trans and LGBTQ, etc. characters in movies and television, the last five years have seen tremendous progress in that regard. Is it good enough? No, of course not. Are there still all kinds of problems associated? Yes. But I don't understand what the strategic political value is in denying that. Like, why say we're weak and we can't create change? Why not say we're strong, we can make change, there's a long way to go, but we can make things happen when we really want to? I have a response to that, but it may be overly cynical. So tell me if you think I'm wrong. A lot of those choices make sense if a motivating drive is not to make the world better, but the motivating drive is to establish and signal your moral superiority over others. Because at that point, you absolutely have an incentive to say, what do you mean, Matt Iglesias, there's been progress? Haven't you seen this terrible video? How dare you say there's progress? You are a bad person for thinking that, and I'm a good person, right? How dare you say that anything is getting better? That's just downplaying sort of how horrible and unjust this society is. I am the truly righteous person who's willing to, you know, bravely stare all of the injustice in the face. And I'm not saying that everybody's motivated purely or primarily by that. You know, obviously a lot of people really do want political change and so on, but it does help to explain to me why things that don't actually seem to, on any plausible account of the world, further the goals 
that these activists have, why those positions are so popular. It's because actually what's driving it in a complicated media and social media environment isn't always what furthers the goals. It is the things that get you prestige online. Mm. That sounds right to me. There is certainly, I've written many times, a bad fit right now between what's necessary for change and what's necessary for self-branding and making yourself appear to be a righteous person. I think that if you want to go real macro with this, you know, for a while now, there's been this idea floating around in progressive spaces that it's all about turnout, not about changing minds. That the way that the democratic coalition, the progressive coalition is going to win is by getting everybody to turn out and inevitably demographic change will save the Democrats and save the country. Well, we just saw, I I believe, a 12-point swing from 2016 to 2020 of Hispanics in favor of Donald Trump. We saw a much tighter election than it should have been. I mean, all the underlying conditions should have suggested a blue wave and we didn't get it. And I think there's been compelling information that non-college educated white people are still an enormous chunk of the electorate. And the Democrats' cratering ability to reach out to those people has an extreme negative impact on your ability to win elections. So if you win elections, then you need to do a better job of appealing to those people. But unfortunately, to publicly say, we should do a better job of appealing to non-college educated whites is to immediately be derided as being somebody who is white supremacist or someone who only cares about the interests of white people rather than about people of color. But that's the thinking that comes along with it when you decided that your moral position is more important than your political impact on the world. And again, there seems to be a sort of pleasure that comes for some people in writing off half of the country. I mean, if you're interested in making progress in the United States, then you shouldn't want to believe that half of this country are sort of irredeemable white supremacists who are always going to be terrible anyway. And yet I think that there is a sense in which that gives a kind of emotional satisfaction. And again, that is explained because, well, you know, I'm the brave person who's fighting against half of a country that is like that. You saw that as well with the predictions about what would happen if Trump lost. Now, People like me have been predicting for a long time that Trump is a serious threat to American democracy, and I think all of his behavior since the election has borne that out. The coup attempt that he staged was completely slapstick and slapdash, and I don't think there was ever any serious risk of it succeeding. That doesn't mean that it wasn't utterly disgusting and irresponsible, and you know, a certain segment of the American population went along with it. But these predictions, when people are predicting there's going to be civil war and riots and all of these Trump supporters are going to get their guns and go out in the streets. Just sort of phenomenologically, it never felt like people were saying this with fear and dread. They were saying it with pleasure. And I think they were saying it with pleasure because if it had happened, it would have proven all of the worst assumptions about those people right. And they wanted the worst assumptions to be proven right. Well, among other reasons, one of the reasons why I wanted Bernie Sanders to be a candidate against Donald Trump in both 2016 or 2020 is simply the fact that it would finally have been this very primal fight between two extremely different wings of American politics and would have given people the opportunity 
to sort of say, okay, what's the closest thing we have to an actual leftist in national American politics right now? And we've got, uh, we've got Donald Trump, who is this populist demagogue for the conservatives. Maybe that would have helped people get that out of their system, the sort of take it to the streets and let's fight each other in the streets sort of a thing. Because I just think people just want to have some sort of final countdown happening. But that does just not, does not seem to me to be a very realistic or, to be frank, a very pleasant outcome. So on the education side, you are, you know, reasonably pessimistic. You're at least pessimistic when it comes to social mobility. I suppose you're somewhat optimistic, perhaps, about our ability to overcome the cult of smart. What about on some of those broader sort of cultural issues? Do you think that in the end we are likely to make progress on some of those issues you care about? Or do you think that the shortcomings we've just discussed will actually create real impediments and needless impediments to progress? From the perspective of my book, I am quite pessimistic. In the policy realm, as you say, I just think that the sort of charter school movement that I oppose for a variety of reasons is very well funded and has the support of some of the most powerful people in the country behind it. And the public schools and their teachers unions do not. So I am pretty pessimistic that things are going to change in general. But culturally, as you asked, I think that individual parents can make individual decisions in the way that they interact with their children. And that if they can demonstrate to those children that their love is not at all bound up in their perception of how well the kid is doing academically, to assert and reassert over and over again, that you can fail academically and it won't change how I think about you one little bit. And that there are a lot of virtues and values out there that are just as important or more important than being smart, like being compassionate, right? being creative, being patient, having depth, having sincerity. All those things are immensely important human goods that don't get rated on any test anywhere. And so they don't tend to attract a lot of attention in our society, but they are fundamental human virtues that we can value and we can honor in the same way that we value and honor being smart right now. Freddie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.